Well, you can be uh, opening your Bibles. We're not in uh, the book of Acts if you come here regularly. We've been going through the book of Acts. Um, today I have three verses uh, that I want to talk to you about. Um, and I know I'm talking about, uh, usually I'm, I'm very big on going straight through a text or the Bible. And, and I'm not going to do violence to any of these uh, texts. In fact, I will try to give you the background of them um, as we go through them. And uh, so, but I, but I want to talk to you about a, a topic. This is, this is usually, this is Palm Sunday, Triumphal Entry Day. And uh, next week is Easter. And, and the cool thing about Easter is that's the day Jesus got up. <laughs> that's the day he came out of the tomb. So I want to talk to you today about his death a little bit. But um, just this week I was, I was reading a verse in it. And it hit me because it's right there in the middle of everything. And I never noticed it before. I want to start by, by asking you uh, or, uh, a question, and that is, we just did this Lord's Supper, and we ate the bread, drank the cup, and in the text that I read, uh, it, it said, as often as you eat it and drink it, you remember the Lord's death until he comes, because Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, and, and, and I've told you before, and I'm going to tell you again today, the best question you can ask is, Why? Why did Jesus want us to remember his death on the cross? And I know there's an obvious answer. Uh, if we don't remember it, we won't know to come to him for forgiveness of sin, right? But, I, but this verse I saw this week, and we'll get to it toward the end today, but, but uh, it lets me know that even as a believer, even though I already know Christ, I need to think about and remember what he did for me. I, you may not be in the same boat I'm in, but I started going to church nine months before I was born. And I've been going ever since. I, there's never a period of time in my life I didn't go to church. I, I've never quit going. I've always been going. I felt a call to do this uh, vocational Christian service uh, at a very, very young age. And uh, this is just what God called me to do. And, and, but there's something that happens when, when you're in this boat I'm in, and that is... You begin not to think about it so much. You begin to, we use the phrase, take it for granted. And, and, and all of us can be guilty of that about something. I, I, I'm always fond of talking about um, great athletes or, or the military or somebody like that who can perform at an extremely high level these certain activities. And they get to the point where they can do it almost in their sleep. I, I remember when I was a young guy, Mary Lou Retton was like the first American girl to get a 10 and win the Olympics in gymnastics. And somebody asked her what she, when did she know she was ready? She said, I consider readiness that if you woke me up at midnight and rolled me out of the bed and told me to run out there and do the floor routine, I would do it perfectly in my sleep. That was how she was thinking. Uh, I, I read another story about a young man who was, wanted to be a lobsterman up in Maine. And so he showed up to the boat, you know, first day of work. And, and the older guy's going to teach him. And he noticed that older guy's missing a finger. He said, lobster, get that? He said, yep, lobster, got my finger. He said, oh, is that when you were starting out too? And he said, no, that was when I got used to it. So when I was young, I was scared of him. And I was very careful. And then I got careless. You see... Every professional, when you learn an activity and you get good at it, you're in danger of thinking, I can do this with my eyes closed. And maybe you can, but if you do it that way for long, 
you're going to get in trouble. In fact, in the military, there's another phrase, complacency kills. When you just decide, oh, we got this, we know how to do it, and you think it doesn't take total concentration, total preparation, you're going to get hurt. My daddy told me I was a little boy, Sunday, you think you can handle a motorcycle, today you're going to fall on it. And he's right. When you think you can handle it, that's when you're going to slip and lose it. And sometimes we get that way, unbelievably, about the very cross of Christ, about what he did for us. And so I call this today, Spare Not His Son, because, well, you'll see. Go ahead to the next uh, slide, if you will. We're going to start in Romans 8. You can turn there. But here's what I want you to remember. It's kind of long, so you might not be able to remember all this. But since God was willing to judge our sin and his only begotten son, the unrepentant sinner will not go unpunished. We also live in a society where everybody gets a participation trophy, but God does not give those out. And you don't believe me, read Revelations chapter 2 and 3, where he's speaking to the churches and he says, He that overcomes... I will give this and this and this. Overcoming is not winning the battle. Overcoming is winning the battle with yourself and not forsaking the truth that you know to be in Christ. You know, it, we think sometimes the ultimate torture thing would be if somebody put a gun to our head and, and we somehow pulled a Jason Bourne on them and got the gun away and took them out, you know, and won that victory. We think that's what it means to overcome. But overcoming is being Cassie or Rachel in Columbine. When a guy who's already killed a bunch of people sticks a gun at their head and says, do you still believe in God? And they look at him and say, yes. That's overcoming. Knowing in the next second they'll be face to face with the Savior they refuse to deny. An amazing thing, right? Well, here's what Romans 8 says. Man, look what God has done for us. In Romans 8, in verse 32, is the text that is on, the, uh, on that first slide. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Well, you may be asking, well, what are those all things that God graciously gives? Well, those are found in the verses before. As I said, I want to give you a little bit of context. Beginning up there in verse 26, he talks about giving us the Holy Spirit. It's the person of the Holy Spirit that lives in us when we, when we are saved. And the Holy Spirit comes at salvation. Romans 8, 11 says, if you don't have the Spirit of God, you don't know God. You're not, you're not saved. You're, you don't, you're not in Christ. And so when we, when we come in faith in Christ, he gives us the Holy Spirit who lives with us. And beginning up there in verse 26... The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. When we don't know what to pray, as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He who searches the heart knows what's the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints of God according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, to those who are called according to his purpose. And for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and, uh, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Did you catch everything that God did for us in those verses? It's, it's really quite amazing. And it goes all the way through verse 31. And what then shall we say to these things? God is for us who could be against us. 
He helps us in our weakness. He intercedes for us when, in our need and when we don't even know how to pray. He works all things to, to good. He conforms us to the image of Christ. God chose us. He called us. He justifies and he glorifies us. So who in the world could be against us? Man, it's a great verse. This is rich. You need, you need to live in this verse. You need to know what it says. But verse 32 tells us the cost of all of that. We, again, we live in a culture today, <coughs> excuse me, we live in a culture today where everybody's good, that there's nobody wrong. Every religion's the same, it's not. You know, every system of government's the same, it's not. In fact, there's only one or two that are any good at all, and only one, and no religion is good, but there's only one belief that is good, and that's belief in Jesus Christ. Because Christ isn't a religion, he's a relationship. Our salvation is not in our religion. Our salvation is in the relationship we have with, with Christ and God. And so in that relationship, how is it that God can give us all these things, which we want? But we live in a society in a time where even the preachers are saying, oh, God wants you to have all this goodness. He doesn't want you to suffer. He doesn't want you to hurt. But wait a minute. What bought us that? Look at verse 32. For God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Did you think about that? The reason that all of the Bible's promises are available to you is because Jesus died on a cross. Let me give you another military phrase. It's used to refer to the enemy or negatively to say, I do not wish to become. And the phrase is a bullet sponge. That means you soak up all the bullets. You don't want to be one of those. You want to make your enemy one of those. I, I'm sorry, I'm, some of y'all look offended, but if you're going to fight war, that's how you fight it. But here's my point. As horrified as you are that I would say that up here, that's what Jesus was for you. He voluntarily became the sponge of God's wrath for you. God is just, and he will not let sin go unpunished. It has to be paid for. And if you and I pay for it, we're going to be in hell forever. So God had to put on flesh, become a man, and not if he'd have been born of a human father, he would have been born with a sin nature, because all of us are born with a sin nature because we're sons of Adam. Jesus was not the son of Adam, he's the son of God. And so he, got, he had a clean slate when he was born, just like Adam did when he was created. And they both had the same temptation, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Adam failed because he took of the fruit and he ate it because he thought, number one, it looks good. Number two, it's going to taste good. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes. And number three, I'll know good and evil like God. I'll be like God, the pride of life. Satan took Jesus after 40 days in the wilderness of not eating. He said, hey, you hungry? Why don't you turn those stones to bread? Lust of the flesh. See the kingdoms of the world, lust of the eyes. I'll give them to you if you bow down to me. And the pride of life took him to the top of the temple and said, Jump off, angels will catch you and float you down. Everybody knows know you're the son of God. And in each of those tests, Jesus said, No, no, no. And he gave scripture why he wouldn't do it. And he passed the test. And the Bible says he was without sin his whole life. So he was worthy to die in our place. And God, the Bible says 2 Corinthians, didn't spare his own son But in 2 Corinthians it says, he who knew no sin became sin. And on that cross, everything, every sin from Adam to the last man that lives 
was placed on Christ and he became the very nature of sin. And the Bible is saying that God is of pure eyes and the look on evil turns away from the cross. And on that cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's quoting Psalm 22. And I, I, my personal belief is Jesus is praying that prayer on the cross. But he said that first line out loud so they would know what he was doing. Because Psalm 22 is about how the Messiah would die and how he suffered. You read Psalm 22 and you realize it's about Christ. And Jesus on that cross, even the Father and God in deity is split in that moment. He experiences hell because hell is separation from God. But that separation happens in a horrible place called hell. That is full of fire and a bunch of other bad things. Uh, this morning, uh, as my wife and I read the same uh, plan for reading our Bible. And we're talking about what, what, we, what hit us, what we got out of it today. And we're in the passage about the rich man and Lazarus. You know, the rich man dies, goes to hell. Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom. And she pointed something out to me I didn't see, but it, I, I really appreciate the guy showed it to her. I, I got something out, else out of the same passage. But she said, did you hear? Notice what the rich man said. The rich man said, he, saw, he sees Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. He said, Abraham, please, Father Abraham, please send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and touch my tongue. Said, even in hell, the rich man still had a superior attitude thinking that guy was his servant and he ought to bring him water. You see, hell doesn't wake you up. You will spend eternity in rebellion and hatred of God as you suffer forever. In fact, and you say, oh, it's unfair anybody go to hell. Are you kidding me? It's unfair anybody goes to heaven because we see sin as so little. You want to know what God thinks of sin? Look at the cross where the wrath of God is poured out on Christ. And hell is an awful, awful place. And, it, and hell, people in hell, God just said, sure, you can have what you want. He gives man what he wants when he take, lets him go to hell. He gives us salvation when we're in rebellion against him and don't desire to know him, according to the Bible. We're dead in trespasses and sin. When we were at the enemies of God, he loved us and gave himself for us. God did something even more miraculous than we can imagine, and he took the wrath of God for us. And the prophet of that, we see there in verse 32 after verse 31, he says, won't he give us all things? And in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What all things? All the promises of God that are in the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says, As many as may be the promises of God in Christ there, yes, and we give the amen through the Spirit. And so it is on the cross that all the benefits of salvation and a relationship with God are bought for us. And you've got to remember what it costs. Or else you're just like a spoiled child whose parents give him what he wants and he never understands the value and the cost that it cost his parents to do that. Well, the second text I want you to look at is Hebrews chapter 2. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3. Here's what it says in, in verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. I want you to see the presupposition in, in this. What you should assume. But God spells it out in verse 1. And he says we need to focus. You better pay closer attention to this. We're, we're coming to church this morning. Drive, driving to church. I was driving. 
And, and we're about to turn on, name of the street escapes me. I don't know my own name at the moment. But anyway, we're just turning to come down here. And Janice said, you need to focus. I said, what are you talking about? I'm focused. I know where I am. You know, I know what I'm doing. And she said, no, you seem scatterbrained. You need to really focus. You're going to preach today. And I, I'm like, why would you say that? And she started telling me all the things I said coming down the road. And just from turning the corner to here, I said, I, I, we went by Brother George Savage's house. That's a good man right there, you know. And then I heard a bird. And I said, hey, did you hear that bird? I was just boom, 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 going everywhere. She said, you need to focus. <laughs> Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. Now, I'm a big proponent of when you see the word therefore in the Bible, you, see, you need to see what it's there for. So therefore means what did I just say? That's what I'm talking about now. So what therefore is goes all the way back to chapter 1, verse 1. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but let me give you a summation of it. This is written, by the way, to the Hebrew mind. You've got to remember that. And it says, God in a lot of ways and a lot of places and in different times spoke through men, moved. He, he gave men messages. But in these last days, he's spoken through his son. And then there's a lot of things about who the son is. But then it says, the sentence says, he's spoken through his son who sat down. In other words, he's finished the work. He sat down and he's seated at the right hand of God on high. Then he goes on to say some of the things that God told us. And it's basically referring to the law. And we, we go through all of that and at the, at the end... Um, in verse 13 of chapter 1, it says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? That's a quote out of Psalm 2 where God says to his son, If you do this, I will give you the kingdoms of the world. I'll make them your footstool. And he promises Jesus the world. And he, we are his body to conquer the world with the gospel. But he says, to which of these angels? And then he refers to the fact that the angels gave this message in the Old Testament. And that kind of confuses us as Christians. But I tell you, you got to remember he's speaking to Hebrews there. Because the Hebrew people thought the messenger of God in the Old Testament was an angel when it was Christ himself. But the word angel and messenger are the same word. So it could be to which of the messengers did he say. But they refer to as an angel because that's how they thought and taught. But what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get us to see is that, is that that message back then came with a high penalty of ignoring it. Just recently in my Bible readings, I, I come to where Joshua is about to go into the promised land. And the Bible, makes sure we get it, get, to make sure we get it, repeats the fact that when they went to go into the promised land, all the fighting men that went into the promised land were either not born or were very, very young, under 20, when they left Egypt. Because the older folks that were there at the beginning. Walk up to the promised land. Knowing that God told them to take it. And said we can't do it. Well of course you can't. You never could. God's going to give it to you. But you got to go in there. And do something to receive it. But they said no. And God said fine. Die. And he let a whole generation die in a wilderness. And, and then the writer of Hebrews says. If God will do that. From the message of the law. What do you think is going to happen if you neglect this salvation? Whew. Because think about what's more important. The x-ray that tells me my leg's broken? Or the doctor that can do surgery, knit it back together, stabilize it through whatever means, cast or brace or whatever, 
so that it has the opportunity to heal, to give me the medicines I need to heal. What's more important, the x-ray tells me it's broken or the thing that fixes it? The Old Testament is the x-ray that says you're a sinner, that you're a liar, you're a thief, you're an adulterer, you're a blasphemer. And now what? (laughs) And you don't obey those laws and you die? And Jesus comes and he's the cure and he says, and you neglect that? Are you kidding me? See, it sounds like I'm talking to lost people. I'm talking to a safe folk. I'm talking to people that know Christ. We better focus and not drift from what we heard because verse 2 there says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? I looked up that word neglect and it means to, uh, to make light of, to be careless about. Just to kind of, uh, it's not important. Listen, if God said it, it's important. And when God says it's important, it's really important. Okay? And so he says, here's the warning. You will not escape if you neglect that kind of salvation. And notice what he says in, in, in these verses. Um, in verse 3, he says, because it was declared by the Lord himself... It was attested to us by those who heard it. And verse 4, And God bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. He says, look at what God did. Jesus told us He'd save us. We who heard it told you that He would save us. And then He saved us and He performed signs and miracles and wonders just so you would know He saved us. We're doing this passion play. And there's a part where Jesus raises the little girl from the dead. You know the story in the Bible. And, uh, and, 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 and we have to act. Sometimes we're not saying anything, so we're supposed to be acting, and I'm not real good at all that. So I've got to kind of talk to myself, and, and uh, occasionally I'll say something in somebody else's ear, and I shouldn't say, and I, Becky's sitting there, so I shouldn't let her know what I do. But, um, but it's her daughter, Ariel, lying there. And so in a practice one time, not in the performance, I put my hand on Travis, who's playing the Apostle John. I'm playing Peter. I put my hand on, on his shoulder, and I, I whispered in his ear while we're in practice. I said, Hey, excuse me, but I got to pay close attention because I got to do this later in the book of Acts. Because Peter raised somebody from the dead, just proving that God, the Holy Spirit, was still alive and active, right? And he just looked at me and kind of laughed and went on, you know. But listen, how will we escape? Because this salvation is real and God's proven that it's real. And He's offered it to us. The only reality. To know God is through Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. There's no other religion that works. There's no other way that works. The only way I'm going to get to heaven is if Jesus carries me in. He's not a crutch. He's a stretcher. I can't limp into heaven. He's going to carry me in because I don't deserve to go. But he made me worthy by paying for my sins on a cross and exchanging the record with me. And that brings me to the verse that got me thinking along these lines. It's Luke 23. I want you to see that. I was kind of just not sure what I was going to do this Sunday. And last Monday, just this week, which is kind of a really a short time in reference to what, to what I do. But in, in, in Luke 23, I was just reading a little devotional book. And he comments on this verse, verse 31. And this comes in the middle of Jesus on his way to the cross. I'll give you the context in a minute. But look at verse 
31 of Luke 23. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? And I went, huh? And then the writer of the devotion I was reading commented on this. There's really, there's two ways people look at this, and you can look them up. But this writer was pointing out, this was a famous proverb amongst the Jews. It's just a saying, you know, like kill two birds with one stone kind of saying. Which means, hey, if I do it this way, I can get twice as much done. If, if I do it that way, I'm going to get one thing done. So I'm going to kill two birds with one stone and do two things at the same time. Well, this is a phrase not meaning the same thing, but just that they use. And what it means is you don't want to burn green wood unless you want to make a smoke signal, right? It doesn't burn very well, and when it does catch fire, you get a fire hot enough to put green wood in, and it starts to be consumed. There's a lot of vapor and stuff getting out of that wood because it's, it's still green. It's wet. It's still got the, the sap in it. And Jesus is on his way to the cross, and notice the context. Go up to verse 26. They led him away. They seized Simon of Cyrene, who's coming in from the country, and they laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And they were following him, and a great multitude of people And of women, they were mourning and lamenting for him. And Jesus turns to them and says, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. And he goes on to explain. Behold, the days are coming when they'll say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And they'll begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, to the hills, cover us. He says, because if they do this to the green tree, what do you think is going to happen to the dry? He uses just a little proverb saying. And what he's saying is, if God will pour out his wrath on his only begotten son, what makes you as a willful sinner think you're going to escape if you neglect such a great salvation? He is letting us know, I am offering a gift. I don't deserve to die. I shouldn't die. I I shouldn't be the one that is burned here. The dry wood should. But I'm going to go willingly to a cross and die in your place. And don't weep for me. Weep for yourself. Be in repentance. Be in mourning for yourselves. I looked this up. And I, I saw a couple of... Really amazing comments some people made. I want to read them to you. They're kind of long. I I will shorten them down a little bit. But Matthew Henry was one of them. And he says, here we see the blessed Jesus, the Lamb of God, as a lamb, led to the slaughter and to sacrifice. And though many reproached and reviled him, yet some pitied him. But the death of Christ is his victory and triumph over his enemies. It is our deliverance, a purchase of eternal life. For us, Therefore, weep not for him, but let's weep for our own sin and for the sins of our children, which caused his death. And weep for fear of the miseries we shall bring upon ourselves if we slight his love and reject his sacrifice for sin. What will he do with sinners themselves who make themselves a dry tree, a corrupt and wicked generation, and good for nothing? The best saints compared with Christ are dry trees. If he suffer, why may not they expect to suffer? And what then shall be the damnation of sinners? Even the sufferings of Christ preach terror to the obstinate transgressor. When we see Jesus on the cross, you get a picture of what God thinks about your sin. And Jesus separated from God, experiencing hell for us. 
That was his agony. And when he cries out, it is finished, it is done at the end. It was a victory cry. I, I took care of the sin of those who will believe in me. Another guy, it's a book called Gill's Exposition of the Entire Bible. It's an older book. I don't even own it, but I found it online. It says, the Lord Jesus is a green tree. It's speaking about him because that green tree is full of juice. It's producing fruit. And we know the fruit that Jesus produced of grace and goodness, of miracles and of teaching and advancing the kingdom of God. And he did not deserve death or to be used in the manner he was. And then he goes on to say this. He was pure in his nature, without sin in his life, harmless in his conversation. He did no hurt to any man's perspective or property, person or property. His enemies could find nothing, nor prove anything against him, nor even the devil himself. But he owned him to be the Holy One of God. And he was declared by the Roman judge to be without sin. But look at everything that happened to him. He was an innocent man. And then he goes on to say, he was persecuted in his infancy. And his life was sought for and despised and reproached by men his entire life. He was apprehended as if he were a thief. He was bound as the malefactor was. And he was arraigned at the bar of men as if he'd been the greatest criminal on earth. He was mocked, buffeted, spit upon in the palace of the high priest. Scourged by Pilate, misused by his soldiers. Arrayed with a scarlet robe and a crown of thorns on his head. And a reed in his hand. And in a mock way, they bowed their knee to him and saluted him as king of the Jews. They crucified him between two thieves. And as he hung on the cross, they mocked him. And they gave him vinegar and gall to drink. To which may be added that he was even forsaken by his God and Father. And his wrath was poured out on him as he sustained that and bore the sins of the people. And the curse of the law was executed on him. Justice drew its sword and then sheathed itself into the body of Christ. For you. For you. If all those things are done to a useful, innocent, holy man, what do you expect? From God. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a careless Christian. I don't want to be a guy that neglects such a great salvation. I don't want to be thoughtless in my relationship with God. I, I can't tell you what to do. I expect God can tell you a lot better than I can, so I'm not going to try to tell you. But I, I'll give you some suggestions what you might think about this week. First of all, use this week. Your daily time with God, and if you don't have a daily time, you ought to get up early and have one. You say, well, I'm too tired. I can't lose sleep. You weren't listening, were you? What Jesus went through on the cross, you can't get up a little bit early just to read what he has to say to you? Reorder priorities, you can do it. And so every day, thank God for his son. Wake up going, thank you, God. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Songwriter in the 70s and 80s wrote a song said, I'm going to celebrate this heartbeat because it just might be my last. So I just, every day I'd get up and celebrate who Jesus is and what he did for me. Number two, have you fully realized God's gift of salvation? Do you know that you are saved? Have you taken this seriously and said, I'm a sinner and I need a savior because without him, I'm lost. I'm totally lost. And if you do know that, then are you telling anybody else, listen, I was headed to hell, going to bust it wide open. I was born going to hell. Songwriters think they're something when they talk about being born bad. We're all born bad. 
God just saved some of us, praise God. And leave them to escape the judgment of God. Just like a burning building or bridge was out, we've used all these illustrations. So you would warn somebody if there was danger ahead. You need to warn people. And then thirdly, why don't you every day repent and reflect on the suffering of Christ this whole week. 